Well, I love Christmas music, and my favorite Christmas song is Oh Holy Night. I just believe that song captures so well uh, the sacredness of the birth of Christ and the majesty of the birth of Christ and the mystery of the birth of Christ. And there's a, a line in that song that always moves me. It's when the song says, fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. I believe that lyric captures um, what the Christmas story ought to mean to us. It should cause uh, a sense of awe and reverence to well up in our hearts and our lives. Fall on your knees. Well, that's going to be the title for our Christmas series over the next three weeks. We're going to take a break from Colossians and pick back up uh, in Colossians chapter 3 and the new year. But we're going to talk about uh, the Christmas story under this heading of Fall on Your Knees. And this morning I want to talk about the plan of God. How the Christmas story is a key aspect of the redemptive plan of God. And how the plan of God ought to cause us to stand in awe at who God is. And what He has accomplished for us. So we're going to talk about that this morning from Matthew chapter 2. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And just by way of information, this is in your bulletin, but I'm writing some devotionals to accompany this sermon series uh, and they start today. So if you go to my blog and the information is in your bulletin, or you can go to our website and, and access the blog through the website, you will find the first devotion. I posted it this morning. So it's up there. And every day uh, up until the 25th and on the 25th, you will see a, uh, a devotional thought uh, written by me. So I hope those will be an encouragement to you and uh, a source of um, edification for you. Just check those out. And, you know, I've, I've had some harsh things to say about social media in the past. I believe the devil used it to create a lot of havoc in families. But I will say, use social media. You know, link to it and, and, uh, and, and get the word out so we can get some Christ-centered messages out there in the midst of all that's going on uh, this season. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king? Of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And here's the verse that is the basis for this sermon series. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left their own country uh, for their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we are so grateful, Lord, for the privilege of gathering together. Lord, I know uh, tradition, uh, uh, conditions are treacherous, Father, and, and many were not able to get out. But God, I'm grateful that you brought this group together. We trust that you're going to speak to us in a mighty way through your word, applied to our lives by your spirit. So just have your way in our midst, touch our hearts, change our lives, lift up the name of Jesus in this place, and help us to understand what it means to have awe in our hearts, reverence in our hearts for Jesus and for, um, for the fact that you have a rescue plan. And we'll thank you for that grace. We love you today and we praise you and offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, it's important that we understand that Christmas is a part of God's great plan of redemption or God's great plan of rescue. And my, my thesis this morning is this. God's great plan of rescue should lead us to worship. Lead us to worship Him, His wisdom, His power, His faithfulness in putting a plan into place and carrying out that plan. And so thinking about that, I want us to consider four parts of the plan of God or four aspects of the plan of God that should cause us to have reverence in our heart. The first thing I want you to see is this. The plan of God was foreshadowed. The plan of God was foreshadowed. Look what it says Back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now here's the question. How did these, these Magi, these wise men from the east, know that the star was leading them to the king of the Jews? They had some sort of insight into who this one was they were journeying to see. I believe the Magi, who probably studied many ancient documents, had access to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And by careful study of the Old Testament, they ascertained that this one God was sending and God was bringing them to witness and to see was the one promised in the Old Testament. And so they were able to say, where's the king of the Jews? We're, we're here to see him. And the reason they knew this one was the king of the Jews, a ruler sent by God, is because there was some foreshadowing found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament pointed to the fact that God was going to send a Messiah, a, a king. And so we understand from this that the plan of God, which we see unfolding here in the Incarnation, uh, is a plan that it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and it is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Now, here's the question. How, how is that plan pointed to in the Old Testament? What are some different ways God foreshadows uh, the incarnation and His unfolding plan that revolves around Jesus? Well, let me give you three different ways that the plan of God is foreshadowed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Number one, by direct prophecies. <coughs> by direct prophecies. It is stunning to see that in documents which were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, the Bible speaks with specificity about details surrounding his birth. 
For example, we see in the Old Testament that, that the Bible names the place of his birth. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. Herod, who's troubled by this news of a, of a king that would rival his throne, gathers all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, how did they know this? They say, it has been written, it has been written by the prophet. And they quote Micah chapter 5. By, or and you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the religious leaders get together and say, Herod, we know the Messiah's going to be in Bethlehem because the Bible said he's going to be in Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem, the little village of Bethlehem, the Bible said that's where the Messiah would be born. Stunning fulfillment of a specific prophecy, the place of his birth. But secondly, the Old Testament speaks of the nature of his birth. Look in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. These words were written by the prophet around 700 years before Jesus Christ came to this earth. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, there's an interesting verse about the nature of this one that God would send, who would be Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7 verse 14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we see this prophecy come to fulfillment in the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, as we see that the Virgin Mary gives birth to Jesus. Uh, Jesus was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. She is the mother of Jesus, and this prophecy is, is fulfilled in that virgin birth. And so the Bible spoke hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was ever born before he left heaven and came to earth about the nature of his birth. It would be a virgin birth, and the Bible speaks of this detail. Third, the Bible speaks of the wise men and the gifts they brought. Again, hundreds of years before the wise men ever journeyed to Bethlehem, led by the star, and come to worship Christ, the Bible speaks of them making that journey. Turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, the Bible says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Now look in verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring, watch this, gold and frankincense. They will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Again, striking detail. We know this verse was fulfilled when the wise men came from the east, came from a foreign nation. It says nations will come to the, the, to the brightness of your coming, and they come from a foreign nation. They come from the east, and they come with some specific gifts of homage. This verse mentions two of them, gold and frankincense. They also brought myrrh. So again, the Bible spoke of, of, of the story of the wise men hundreds of years before it actually happened. So when you see the Bible, we see that 
through direct prophecy, the birth of Christ and the plan of God was foreshadowed. But not only was it foreshadowed by direct prophecy, it was foreshadowed by types and pictures of Christ. Types and pictures of Christ. There are some pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament that speak of his nature and his work. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal to see these pictures. Now we need to understand that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament, the entire Bible is about God's plan of rescue, and the rescuer is Jesus Christ, right? So the entire Bible is about Jesus, and when you read the Old Testament through those lenses, you begin to see Jesus everywhere. And it is remarkable and awe-inspiring to see. Now when I use the word type, when I say types and pictures of Christ, the word type is, is used to denote a a resemblance between something present and something future. So we see some things happening in the Old Testament that resemble what Jesus would do and who Jesus would be for us in the New Testament. We see those types fulfilled in Christ. So wait, can you give me some examples? Let me give you some of my favorite examples of Old Testament types which foreshadowed Jesus Christ. The first uh, starts with the story of the Jews in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. If you remember, the uh, Israelites rebelled against God, and so God, as an act of judgment, sent fiery serpents throughout the camp, and they were biting folks, and people were dying. I mean, on the spot, they were dying as these poison snakes bit them. And so the people come to Moses, say, Moses, will you pray to God for us, that he would relent of this punishment, relent of his wrath. So Moses, as their intercessor, goes to God, he prays, says, God, would you save us from these fiery serpents? And so the Lord gave Moses some instructions. He said, you need to take a a serpent made out of of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up in the middle of the camp. And if someone is bit by a serpent, if they will look to that serpent on the pole, the bronze serpent, they will be healed. And so that's what happened. Moses had this, this bronze serpent fashioned, put it up in the middle of the camp, and when someone was bitten, they would look, and if they looked, they would be healed, and they would not die. God provided a way to be saved... From his wrath. Now you say, wait, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, we'll turn to John chapter 3. Before we get to the famous verse 16 in this chapter, there are some remarkable verses that show us that the serpent in the wilderness was a type of Christ. Look in John chapter 3 with me, verse 13. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says, No one has descended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, watch this, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And so Jesus himself says that the serpent in the wilderness is a type, a picture of what I'm going to do. Just like the serpent was lifted up, Jesus told us he was going to be lifted up. This speaks of the cross. He was going to be lifted up to die for the sins of humanity, to die for our sins. And just like if people looked at the serpent, they would be saved from God's wrath. If people looked at Jesus, if they believe in Jesus, they will be saved from God's wrath. So this serpent in the wilderness is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament, a a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he would do by dying on the cross in our place. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I got two more, two of my favorites. Another, Another great type in the Old Testament is the Passover lamb. 
You can read about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. You remember that God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to do it. He hardened his heart, would not let the, the Jews leave. He wanted to keep them as slaves. And so God sent plagues. And the 10th plague would be the most devastating. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. But before God sent that, that plague to, to judge Egypt and to, to, to bring Pharaoh to a point of brokenness to release the Jewish people, God gave some instructions to his people, the Hebrews. And he said, listen, the death of the firstborn is imminent. I'm going to send a terrible plague throughout the land. But I'm going to provide for you a way to be spared from this judgment, to be spared from this wrath. Here's what you need to do. You need to take a lamb, and you need to kill that lamb, and take the blood from that lamb, and put it on your doorpost. And on the night, when the death angel comes to kill the firstborn in the land, if he comes to your house, and he sees the blood of that lamb, he will pass over your house. You will be saved from the wrath of God. And that's just what happened. The Jews would take a Passover lamb, kill it, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and on that night, when, when God sent his terrible plague throughout that land, when, when he saw the blood, he would pass over their homes. We say, wait, what's that got to do with Jesus? Well, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Bible says that Christ is our Passover lamb. In other words, if we are under his blood, if we have received him as Lord and Savior, and his blood covers our life, on judgment day, when it comes time for people to, to, to pay for their sins, when God comes to us, if he sees the blood, he will pass over us in judgment and we will be saved. We are saved by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Pretty cool, right? And that Passover lamb in Exodus is a picture of the work of Jesus. Well, there's one more I want to share with you. There, there are more, but I'm just sharing my top three. I like Exodus chapter 17 where the Jews have been delivered from Egyptian bondage and slavery miraculously by the power of God and they're in the wilderness and they're thirsty. And God causes water to come out of a rock to give them what they need to satisfy their need for water. Well, guess what 1 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4 say about Jesus? They say that the rock in Exodus is Christ. The rock pictured Christ. In other words, just like the rock provided for the Israelites' need in the wilderness, Jesus provides for our deepest need, our need for redemption, our need for salvation. So that rock that gave water in Exodus is a picture of the fulfilling work of Jesus in our lives. It's a type, it's a picture of Christ. And so God foreshadowed Jesus in, in and through that in the Old Testament. But there's another way that the plan of God was foreshadowed. And it's by covenants, by covenants. There are two major covenants that we find uh, in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ and are, are fulfilled in Christ. The first is the Abraham covenant, the Abraham covenant. Now, scholars would say the Abrahamic covenant, but it's easier to say Abraham covenant, all right? And I want to show you this in Genesis chapter 12. Turn there with me, Genesis chapter 12. I'll show you this covenant that God entered into with a man named Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and 
make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants, and through your descendants, I'm going to build a great nation. Now he's talking here of the Jewish people. He's going to, through Abraham's seed, uh, build and, 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 and preserve this great nation. Then in verse 3 he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now watch this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, through your descendants, I will provide blessing for the entire world. Now this covenant speaks of a redeemer. It promised a redeemer. But how does this come to pass? Well, God was going to send someone through the Jewish people, through Abraham's descendants, that would make salvation available to people from every tribe, every tongue, every, uh, every people group on the earth. And so, people from every tribe and every tongue will be redeemed, will be saved through the one God sends through the Jews. So through Abraham's descendants, people from every nation, or every people group, will be blessed. It's a, it's a covenant, a promise of redemption. But that's not the only covenant. There's another one he makes with David, found over in 2 Samuel. Turn there with me, 2 Samuel, chapter 7. This is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Look what the Bible says in verse 12. This is the Lord speaking to David. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. This speaks of Solomon. Because look what it says next. He shall build a house for my name, which speaks of the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he just went beyond Solomon, didn't he? He starts talking about Solomon, but then he says, through your descendants, through your lineage, there will be a king that reigns eternally, that reigns forever. He says in verse 14, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me, speaking again of Solomon, when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the, with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my love and kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this covenant promised a ruler. The, the Abraham covenant promised a redeemer. The David covenant promised a ruler. Now, who fulfills both of these promises? Who, who, who fulfills... God's covenant that he made. Well, turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's about to get real good. You ready? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. As Matthew begins his gospel, his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Watch this. The son of David and the son of Abraham. In other words, Jesus is the one who fulfills both covenants. He's the one through the descendants of Abraham that came to die for the sins of the world. So that if anyone from any tribe, any nation, any people group places their faith in him, they can be blessed with salvation. And he's the ruler. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will rule forever and ever and ever through the lineage of King David. So Jesus fulfills both of these covenants. And these covenants point to Jesus. They foreshadow Jesus and what he would do and who he would be for us. Now wait, what does all this mean? The plan of God was foreshadowed. What, what are we to glean from all of that? It means that God was not making up things as events unfolded. I, I want you to understand that, that God is not a reactionary God. 
He's not kind of seeing what happens over here and he said, well, I'll adjust and do this. Or No, God is a proactive God. He's the one that's working the plan out. And guess what? This plan was in place before the very foundations of the world. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God had a plan in place to rescue sinners. He knew how it would all go. He knew our greatest need would be for a Savior. And so God had that plan in place ready to go. And the Bible is the unfolding of that plan. God is not reactionary. God is the one making it all happen according to His will and His way. You see, you look in your notes, the predictions and pointers to Christ's birth remind us that God had a plan for our redemption before the foundations of the world and the incarnation. What we're studying this morning, Matthew 2, the incarnation is a critical and magnificent part of His redemptive plan. As we think about the birth of Christ, don't just think of this nice little Christmas story Think of it as a critical part of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth so he could fulfill those covenants and fulfill those types and fulfill those prophecies to be our Savior, to be our King. It's magnificent to see that the plan of God was foreshadowed. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time fulfilling a plan to go out and eat somewhere. I mean, Claire and I can leave the house and we say, we're going to go eat here. And by the time we get to where we're going to eat, we've changed three or four times. One day we were riding down the road and, and Claire said, uh, we were talking about where to eat. We are going on a date. We had a date night and, and we were talking about where to eat. And we had a plan. We're going to go over here. But then we started talking, well, maybe not here. And, and Claire said, we'll go anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go? I said, Mexican. She said, no, not Mexican. <laughs> the, plan, it just, the plan just kept changing. Listen, that's just one night of where to go to eat. But here we see a plan. That God had in place before the foundations of the world. And he's executing that plan to perfection. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's making it all happen. And that should cause us to worship, right? It should cause us to stand in awe at who God is and what God has done and what God is doing in human history. But there's a second thing here. God's great rescue plan should lead us to worship. Consider not only... That the plan was foreshadowed, but the plan of God is for all peoples. All peoples. Look what happens back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It's now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now scholars believe that these magi from the east were probably from Persia or from Babylon, somewhere in that area that fits the description of who these men were and the type of wise men or astrologers or readers of ancient documents uh, in that area in that time. And so that's probably where these men were from. Which leads us to this question. Why did God want to lead them from Persia or Babylon to where Jesus was so they could encounter Christ? Why is he doing that? He's teaching us something about the plan of God. He's teaching us who salvation is for. Who is salvation for? Well, it's from people from every nation. Every nation. It's interesting to note that these wise men are led by God from Persia or Babylon. Now, Persia is modern-day Iran. Babylon is, is modern-day Iraq. And, and God brought witnesses from a, a foreign land to come and encounter Christ. Pretty significant, right? 
And God also alerted the Jews on the night Christ was born. He, he came to some shepherds, and the shepherds came to, to see Jesus, to encounter Jesus. So we see here that God wants Jews to encounter Christ, and God wants Gentiles to encounter Christ. Which reminds us that, that Jesus is for people from every nation. That's why the Great Commission is this. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the peoples of the earth. Every people group. Every people group needs to hear the gospel so they can know how to be saved if they will embrace Christ. So who's salvation for? It's for people from every nation. But secondly, salvation is for people from every level of society. Isaiah 60 says about these wise men, these magi, that they were kings. And we know they were men of importance because they were given an audience with King Herod. Not just anybody could walk into King Herod's palace. But he gave them an audience. He gave them, he gave them his time because these were men of importance. So we see men that were higher on the social scale, rulers, kings, important people of influence coming to encounter Christ. But also remember when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, the night he was born, who did the angels appear to? Shepherds who were on the bottom of the social scale. They were scorned and ridiculed by the upper crust of society. And yet, the Lord wanted to bear witness to the birth of Christ to these lowly shepherds. So we see people all along the social scale encountering Christ, which is an important reminder to us that salvation is for people from every nation and salvation is for people from every level of society. Aren't you glad that we can offer this good news, we can offer this gospel to people from every tongue and people from every... uh, corner of this world, every level of this world, we can offer them the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. So we see here the plan of God is for all peoples, all peoples. There's a third thing we see about the plan of God that should cause us to worship. The plan of God is for your joy. Now we've been looking at the plan of God from sort of a 30,000 foot view, kind of been looking down and, and kind of looking at how the plan of God is unfolding from a big picture perspective. But now We're going to think more specifically about the plan of God and its implications for your life and my life. Now, I want you to understand that the plan of God is for your joy. Look in Matthew chapter 2 with me, verse 10. The Bible says, When they, the, the wise men, the magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew uses an adverb here, exceedingly, and he uses an adjective, great, uh, to convey the joy of the wise men. Now here's the question. Why did the wise men have such joy? Why was joy filling up their lives? Because the star indicated they were being led to the one that God had promised to send. In other words, they knew the Redeemer, the one promised in the Old Testament, was here now. He had arrived. And they got to go encounter this one sent by God. God. They get get to go encounter the Messiah. This gave them joy. So listen to me. The fact that the Redeemer had arrived gave them joy. Does it give you joy that the Redeemer has arrived? Does it give you joy that Jesus left the splendor and the glory and the unceasing worship of heaven and took on human flesh to come and fulfill the law? and die for our sins, and rise from the dead, and ascend to the Father, and one day return. Aren't you glad that He came? 
It ought to cause joy in our lives. The fact that the Redeemer has arrived should cause us the same type of joy. Let me say it like this. The fact that the Redeemer has come should provoke in us feelings of joy. Feelings of joy. Look what it says there in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they had great joy. That word great is megos in the Greek language. It's where we get the word mega from. So these, these wise men had mega joy, big joy. They were feeling Real joy because the Messiah had arrived. Listen to me. God is after us having feelings of joy. God wants us to have feelings of joy. God's not just after our minds. He's after our hearts. And what we know in our minds and believe in our minds affects what happens in our hearts, right? God wants us to have those feelings of joy. Let me ask you a question. Do you have joy this morning? I I mean, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy that does not come and go with the circumstances of life. Joy that, 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 that's there whether things are good or bad. Joy that abides. Joy that remains. Joy that gives you strength. Do you have that joy? Now if you, want, if you don't, one of two things are true. Number one, you've never encountered the true source of joy. Jesus is the only one that gives real, abiding, lasting, fulfilling joy. You'll only find it in Christ. He's the source. He's the rock in the wilderness. Amen? He meets our deepest needs. You'll never find joy apart from Christ. So if you don't have real, abiding joy this morning, it's because you never encountered the source of true joy. Or, maybe you have encountered Christ, but you've forgotten. You've forgotten how good He is. You've forgotten his character, you've forgotten his nature, you've forgotten what he's done for you, you've forgotten the wonder of salvation, you've forgotten the wonder of knowing Christ in a real personal way. You've just, you've just gotten over being saved. And you've lost sight of that joy. You, you, it's not there like it used to be. You don't walk with God like you used to. You don't serve God like you used to. You're not in the Word like you used to be. You're not excited like you used to be. The joy that used to burn brightly in your heart is smoldering and maybe as you think about the plan of God as you think about God working in human history to send us a Messiah to send us a Redeemer to send us a Savior joy will be kindled afresh in your life because God is he wants you to have joy he wants you to find your satisfaction in him he wants you to experience life eternal and life abundant Through Him, the plan of God is for our joy. So the fact that the Redeemer has come should provoke in us feelings of joy, but it also should provoke in us expressions of joy. Expressions of joy. Look what it says there in verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. So the feelings of joy came out of their life. I mean, they were actually, listen, they were actually excited about the Messiah. I wonder if someone could look at your life and say, they are excited about Jesus. Claire shared with me a question one day that they had talked about in in a study they were having. The question was this. If you ask your kids, what's most important to mom and dad? What would your kids say? What would your kids say? What's most important to mom and dad? Just by them watching your life, what would they say is most important? 
And I submit to you that we should be so in love with Jesus, we should understand that, that, that He has made available for us salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, a relationship with God. He's transforming us from the inside out. We should be so in love with Jesus, so in tune with what He's doing in us and for us, that joy should well up in us and come out of our lives. We should talk about Jesus. We should sing about Jesus. We should discuss Jesus in the home. Because the fact that the Redeemer has come should provoke in us expressions of joy. Is the joy of Jesus expressing itself in your life? It did with the wise men. But there's a fourth thing here, and we'll be through. We've seen that the plan of God was foreshadowed. The plan of God is for all peoples. The plan of God is for your joy. And then fourth, the plan of God is for His glory. Look what happens in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They fell to the ground. That's the basis for this sermon series. They fell on their knees. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first thing the wise men did in the presence of the king was fall on their knees and worship. First thing they did, they saw the one promised by God in the Old Testament. They saw him there. They fell on their knees and worshipped. Now listen to me. That response... The response of worship from the wise men is God's goal in human history. That's what God is is doing in the world. He's working in remarkable ways, powerful ways, to make sure that when the dust settles on human history, all glory will go to Him. He's he's working toward that day when the, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk says. That's what God's doing. Now you say, wait, why is God so concerned about the glory of His name? Why is He working to this degree, providentially, sovereignly? Why is He working for His name to get all the glory? Listen to me, because His name deserves all the glory. And how many of you understand that God always does the right thing? Raise your hand. He always does the right thing. He's perfect, right? He's holy. He always does the right thing. The right thing is for God to give glory to the one who deserves all the glory. And he's the one that deserves all the glory, right? So it's the right thing for him to work in human history through this redemptive plan so that his name gets maximum glory. That's what God's doing. The response of the wise men here in this chapter is what God's after in history. And listen to me. If that's what God is working towards in human history... Maybe that's what God wants from us as individuals. The response of the wise men is God's goal for our lives. That we would not just be casual acquaintances with Christ. That we would not just be church members. But that we would have a vital relationship with Christ and He would be a receiver of our worship. That He would get glory from our lips and from our lives. That's what He's looking for from us. That we glorify Him. And there are many different expressions of worship. There are many different expressions of glorifying God. But maybe there's no expression that's quite as compelling as that of being on our knees. They fall down to worship Him. When you fall on your knees, you are, you are conveying a sense of humility. God, you're God, I'm not. 
When you fall on your knees, you're, you're conveying a sense of awe in God's presence. Awe at His plan. Awe at His goodness. Awe at His grace. When I was in India in October, I noticed something happening in the churches where we were visiting and worshiping with. I noticed that many of the believers in India would walk into the church, and, and even though the service was going on in many times, people were singing songs all of that, many of the Christians would come and they would just, they would just get down on their knees like this. Maybe do their hands like this, or maybe open their hands up like this. They would just spend a few moments, not a lot, just a few moments on their knees. And then they'd get off their knees, and they would, they would commence with the time of worship. They'd be involved in what was going on in that service. And I thought, nothing showy about that. They just have real humility before God, and they're in awe at God's grace in their life. And they just get on their knees as a, a way to convey that. And I thought, now what if that happened in our churches in America? What if we were all standing and singing our songs and someone walked in and they stood by where you were standing and they got down on their knees for a few moments? We would think they're weird, right? We would think they've lost their mind. But what happened in the, the Magi's lives when they encountered the Messiah? They fell down and worshipped. So I want to encourage you this this Christmas season, all that's going on in your life and in the life of our church, I want to encourage you, maybe as a family, and this is in my blog that's, uh, that's posted today in the devotion, maybe as a family, maybe in your individual prayer time in your closet, spend some time on your knees. Think about the plan of God. Think about what He's done, what He's doing, what He will do. For your redemption, your salvation. Spend some time on your knees thanking God that your past is redeemed and your present makes sense and your future is secure. Because being on your knees really conveys humility and it really conveys awe. I hope we'll have both this Christmas season.